We are indeed beginning a new series on uh, the life of Moses. We're using this uh, book by Adam Hamilton, Moses and the Footsteps of the Reluctant Prophet. It's available on Amazon or um, anywhere, really, that you want to order it if you want a copy of it. And uh, you don't have to have it to participate in worship, but to participate in the series. But that's where we will be headed for this season of Lent. Perhaps you're familiar with Moses. Perhaps you're not. If you are, uh, perhaps you're most familiar with Moses parting the Red Sea to uh, set the people free, lead them to the promised land, right? But you can imagine this, right? Stop that, Moses, and take your bath, right? They should have known early on uh, that he was destined for greatness. Uh, Leading the Israelites through the Red Sea, perhaps you're familiar with the Ten Commandments and understand that Moses was associated with that. But Moses is an ordinary man, and as we will see over the course of these weeks, a reluctant prophet, though willing, that God will use to lead God's people to the promised land, to deliver them from slavery. And in the season of Lent, we will be remembering that in Christ we are delivered from slavery to sin and death, that we are set free to live fully in God's grace. That's our story. We are free. But many of us still live as if we are enslaved to sin and death. Many of us still live bound by fear. And I wonder if you will listen and be attentive through this season of Lent to where you find yourselves in Moses' story. Will you allow God to meet you where you are in the story of Moses, to set you free and let you live freely and fully in God's grace? Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us today, to let it take hold of us and transform us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The backdrop of the story of Moses uh, is also the backdrop of the story of Joseph. You may remember that Joseph was the son of Jacob. Jacob, who after wrestling with God, encountering God, was renamed Israel. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is Jacob's favored son. Remember, maybe you have seen the, the movie or the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Joseph got a special coat um, from his father uh, uh, showing his favor, and, um, which promptly led Joseph's brother to get rid of him, basically to sell him into slavery. And eventually, Joseph became second in command uh, to Pharaoh, second in command over Egypt which later allows him to save his family. When there is famine in Canaan and they go to Egypt for help, it is Joseph, it is their brother Joseph, who helps them and saves their lives. Um, We have a map that we will be using throughout the series. It's in the book, and I'm sure you can find it online too. I I know you can't see all the details of that. We just want you to have some context. So over here on the screen to your left, I've got a green pointer. Here's Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt. 
Canaan is going to be up here. You, can, you can't read this, but this says Jerusalem. If you trust me, that's what that says. That says Jerusalem, right? So this is Israel. What we know is Israel. Here is the land of Goshen. Perhaps you've heard of the land of Goshen. This is Memphis. In the old kingdom, Memphis was the capital of Egypt. In the new kingdom, Thebes was the capital of Egypt. And this area right here is likely... Uh, would have been where the Pharaoh was in residence and uh, the capital when Moses was born. So just giving you this geography, this is the Red Sea. Uh, That's going to come into play later, right? So just kind of getting your eyes around and your mind around where we are geographically. Israel's up here, the Israel we know today. Egypt is here. Here's the Nile River, right? Thebes is the capital in the new kingdom, and likely was the capital when Moses becomes into the picture. The Genesis, the book of Genesis, the first book of our Bible, ends with the death of Joseph, and Exodus begins with a story that gets us to Moses. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that whole generation But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this is going to be the problem. As long as there was a king who still remembered Joseph and Joseph's family and what Joseph had done for Egypt, then Joseph and his family and his people were all protected. But a new king eventually arose who did not know Joseph. And that's where our story begins with Moses. Pharaoh said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed upon them. This new Pharaoh was afraid. He was afraid of these people that he didn't No, he was afraid that they would join Egypt's enemies and would, if there was a war, that they would join against Egypt, fighting against Egypt. He didn't really have actual reason for this. He is the most powerful person on the earth at that point. He is in the position with the most power, and yet he is afraid. He's afraid and he's anxious about this minority population. Even when they are becoming strong and fruitful and multiplying, they don't take over the Egyptians that are there. But Pharaoh is afraid. And so he despises them. He oppresses them. He enslaves them to do work for him. Fear. Fear is such a powerful emotion. An irrational fear can lead us to do irrational and sometimes horrible things. I think about irrational fears as as what-ifs, right? That irrational fear. 
if this happens, I've got to be prepared. If they do this, I have to be ready. There's no basis for that those things actually happening. We're projecting into the future our own fears about what might happen. But out of our fear of something that has yet to come to pass, we sometimes do really awful, irrational, horrible things. If you look throughout our, the history of the world, you can see this clearly. You can see in nations uh, where people in power or gained power and out of fear began to oppress and dehumanize and even kill those who were different. If you think about the Nazis in Germany, if you think about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or the Hutu in Rwanda or various leaders in the Middle East, but even in our own country, though perhaps the killing and the brutality doesn't match that of those other events, we can see throughout our history as a nation that people who are different from those who are in the majority become targets of oppression and dehumanization. If you think about the Irish Catholics in the mid-1800s, the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, the Immigration Act of 1924, which was in response to Russians and other Eastern European undesirables wanting to live in our nation, to the Mexican-American repatriation in the 1930s, to Japanese internment camps in the 1940s, to the ongoing discrimination against African Americans, against Native Americans, against women, against our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community, against our differently abled brothers and sisters. It continues even now. And I suspect that any time you see or witness or experience oppression, if you look beneath the surface of that, there is fear. Irrational fear of the other motivating behaviors that are often inhumane and unjust. Fear. Such a powerful emotion. And if we give in to fear, often we do things that are completely contrary to who God calls us to be. Even with the increasing oppression, the Israelites' population grew and Pharaoh became increasingly afraid. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. And perhaps what is uh, the earliest act of, of civil disobedience they didn't do this. They did not follow what the Pharaoh wanted. The midwives feared God. They feared God. And, and it's interesting, the play on the words here, right? The, they feared God, an awe, a reverence, a respect for God, while Pharaoh was afraid of the people. In their fear of God, fear for God, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Right? These midwives are, are clever. They fear God. They fear God over the law of the land, the command of, 
of Pharaoh to kill, and they choose life. They choose life in a way that is disobedient, in a civil kind of way to the order of the government. Pharaoh doesn't seem phased by this. He commanded then all of his people, not just the midwives working with the Hebrew mothers, but all of his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now here's part of the irrational piece of that fear, right? If he's worried about uh, what is going to happen, he's also losing his whole workforce, right? He's not thinking through what he's doing because he's not doing it out of any rational sense of who he is, or, or what life means. An irrational fear of the other. And this then gets us to the birth of Moses. Now, a man from the house of Levi. Levi was also one of Jacob's sons. So Levi was one of Joseph's brothers. A man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So his sister stands at a distance and watches. They they know where Pharaoh's daughter will come and bathe. And so when they see Pharaoh's daughter come and bathe and and pick the, the basket up out of the reeds, the baby's sister goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? And she says, yes. And so Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mother to come and be the nurse, nursing mother for Moses. The sweet irony of God's provision, right? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, this is to the sister, take this child, uh, I mean to the mother, to Moses' mother, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. Pharaoh's daughter took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him up, drew him out of the water. That's what the name Moses means. One of the things that it means is that he has been drawn up out of the water. So the story began. The story of Moses begins. He's born into this time, into this place. The story of Moses is is not just an Old Testament story. It's the story that provides the structure of the story of Jesus for us. That Moses is born into a time and a space when and where God's people were being oppressed and enslaved by the power of the land, by Pharaoh. Jesus will be born into a time and a space when and where God's people again are being oppressed by the power of the land, by Herod. When we look at the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, Matthew uh, is going to work to help us understand the role that Moses played and the role that Jesus plays and the parallels between them. This is after uh, Jesus has been born and the wise men have visited. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. Immediately after this is when Herod orders the killing of all the children under two years old. Right? There's parallels in this story. We're, we're meant as people of, who follow Jesus to understand the story of Moses in light of Jesus. In light of what happens there, as the story of Moses unfolds for us over the next few weeks, we're going to see how firmly based, um, how this story is so firmly based in God's steadfast love for God's people and God's faithfulness to the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham that says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make your name great. I will bless you to be a blessing. We're going to see how God delivers the Hebrew people from slavery and sets them on the path to being the people God has called them to be. God calls them to be set apart, to be holy, to be different than the nations and the peoples around them in order to be, and and God is going to bless them, in order for them to be a blessing to those nations. And as we see that, then we're also going to remember that in Christ, God does the same for us. God delivers us from slavery to sin and death and frees us to live fully in God's grace as God's people set apart to be holy, to be different than the world around us. We're going to be in the world, but not of the world, but called to be a blessing to the world, to love God and to love people. We're going to watch how this, these parallel tracks unfold for us as we look at Moses' life. It's not lost on me, and it's probably not lost on you either. Perhaps the names and the dates and the times, that the places have changed, but human behavior has not changed. Fear remains a powerful motivator for our behavior. Maybe not us in this room. I'll, I might give you that exception, but when you look at our nation and our world, as a people, we tend to be afraid of other people. Afraid of people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't have the same life experiences as us, who come from different cultural backgrounds. We're afraid of people who are different. I think mostly it's that we're afraid of losing what we think we have. We're afraid uh, of losing power. We're afraid of losing position or possessions or control or what we perceive as our security. When others who are different from us enter into our realm of possibility, they become a perceived threat to us and to what we have and to who we are. We're so afraid of losing what we think is ours that we take away or even withhold from others in need because they're different from us. And somehow, somehow we justify that by our position in our culture or in our society. For most of us in this room, we have a privileged position in this world. We are mostly white. We are mostly middle to upper class. 
We are mostly educated. We are mostly either employed or we've been successfully employed across the course of our lives. That's our position. That's what we know. That's our experience. And so when we look at others who are different from us, we tend to make judgment about what they need or what they want based on what we fear about giving up or losing for ourselves. As Christians, as American Christians in particular, we even use God and Scripture and faith to convince ourselves that we are in the right to somehow um, convince ourselves that these privileges that we enjoy, and honestly, sometimes we don't really think of them as privileges. We think of them as blessings from God. We feel like we've been blessed by God. But these privileges that we enjoy, we use them against other people. The insidious thing is not only do we do this with people who are not Christians, who are not of, the, uh, of a Christian uh, faith or Christian belief, we do this to one another within the Christian church. We're so focused on this either-or place of being that it's us and them. If you don't agree with me, then you must be against me. And if you're against me, well, I'm on God's side, right? God's on my side, so you must be wrong. We, we set up this false dichotomy even within the Christian faith. I think because we're afraid. We're afraid of what will happen if we let go of some of what we have. We don't want to know what it might be like to not be in a position of power or authority, to not have what we have. We put ourselves against one another in a way in which we fail to see what we have in common. Our humanity. And that the truth is we all bleed the same. We do it because we're afraid. And that fear is in direct opposition to love. In the kingdom of God, the distinction, the line of distinction is not based on our differences. It's not men on one side and women on the other side. It's not educated on one side, uneducated on the other side. It's not rich or poor. That's not the line of distinction in the kingdom of God. You know what the the line of distinction in the kingdom of God is? Whether you love or you don't love. And, And the love there is the agape love that is seeking the other person's highest good. It's a sacrificial kind of love. God gives us a new command to love one another as God has loved us. Agape love, considering the highest good of the other. I think that's where where the rub is, right? Because our fear is based on what we believe to be the highest good for ourselves. Our love is to be based on the highest good of the other. We don't have to be enslaved to fear, friends. That's not who we are. 
One of my favorite passages of Scripture out of Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We are children of God, heirs of God. All that is in God's kingdom is ours to inherit. We don't have to be afraid of losing anything that we have. This is who we are, beloved children of God, no longer slaves to fear. If you have been baptized, this is your story. Your narrative to live into and to live out of. We're no longer slaves to fear. And when we believe that, then we truly can live out the vows we make in our baptism. These are the questions that we ask at baptism. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sins? And we all say in baptism, I do. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? And we all say, I do. Do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races? And in baptism, we all say, I do. And then we close the hymnal and we go home. This is who we are no longer slaves to fear. Empowered by God's Spirit, we're baptized by water and the Spirit so that we are empowered to do these very things. Resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. Friends, I wonder if there's any place in your life where the fear of losing what you have or what you think you have in terms of power or control or a position or possessions or security, is there a place where fear keeps you from living in the freedom that God offers to you? Is there any place where following the law of the land keeps you from following the law of God? In an act of civil disobedience, Shipra and Pua chose love and their fear of God over colluding with the power of the land. In an act of civil disobedience, Moses' mother hides him, choosing love over fear. In an act of civil disobedience, Pharaoh's daughter, she knows her dad has ordered the death of all of these babies. And yet she chooses love over fear Their small acts of civil disobedience didn't solve the whole problem. I mean, Pharaoh then said to all the people, okay, now everybody, if you see a Hebrew baby born, throw it in the river. But their small acts of choosing love over fear set into motion or kept in motion God's plan of deliverance for God's people. They chose love over 
fear. We are called to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, not by countering that with hatred or violence or threats or oppression of the other. Sometimes that seems to be what happens, right? We, we think we're resisting evil, but we end up returning evil for evil. That's not what this is about. We resist with love, with agape love, with a sacrificial love that seeks the highest good of the other, the same love with which God loves us and sets us free from slavery to sin and death, the same love that frees us from being slaves to fear. And so I wonder today, are you afraid or are you free? Are you afraid or are you free? Let us pray. Loving God, it's not that we ever intend to act out of fear. In our minds, we we hear these words that we are your beloved children. In our minds, we know that you have created all of humanity, and yet our hearts and our lives, we, we get so twisted up with, with not being sure that, that we believe it. And in our humanity, in our reaching and our grasping for achievement and success and identity, we reach and grasp for the wrong things. We don't want to live out of fear, and yet sometimes we simply forget that we are loved by you, that we are your beloved children, and as your spirit bears witness with our spirit, we can know that we have been set free. We are no longer slaves to fear. So help us, Lord. Help us to choose love. Help us to choose love that it seeks the highest good of the other person. Give us eyes to see Lord, where we get in the way. And during this Lenten season, move in us in such a powerful way that we let go of the things that keep us bound in fear. We long for the world to be a different place. Help us understand that it's not enough to long for it that you are empowering us as your beloved children, baptized by water and the Spirit. You are empowering us to be the ones to make the difference. O Lord, come and dwell in us and among us. Help us see and hear and love the way that you do. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.